This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1866, a 16-year-old cowboy, the name is literal in his case, named J.M. Doherty bought a 1,000 cattle, hired five cowboys, and headed north for Missouri. In Indian territory, he took the long way around Cherokee land to avoid paying them for crossing their grassland. In Doherty's story, some Yankee Jayhawkers ambushed him, shot some of his companions, and took him prisoner, accusing him of bringing infected cattle into Kansas. Escaping, the teenager found his cowboys, rounded up the cattle, and then brought them finally to market. Some of that story was true, and probably the truest parts were the strangest parts. Cowboys were often incredibly young. Small numbers of them were able to drive immense numbers of cattle for incredible distances, and in the wake of the Civil War, there was always bad blood between the Yankees in Kansas and former Confederates in Texas. With me to discuss the great cattle drives from Texas is Tim Lehman, author of Up the Trail, How Texas Cowboys Herded Longhorns and Became an American Icon, published by Johns Hopkins University Press as part of their series, How Things Worked. This is, I think, the second or the third title we've done in that series, and it won't be the last. It's great. Tim, thanks for joining us on Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. So... This is kind of, I, I told uh, a friend, an, another Western historian, that uh, I was uh, having a conversation with you, and he said, dang it, why didn't I think of that? Um, he just, it was like a lying in plain sight. And I looked through your bibliography and realized that a lot of the books uh, that people are used to referring to when it comes to cattle drives are getting kind of old now. Um, so this was kind of a bright, shiny quarter, just lying, or even 50 cent piece, just lying on the sidewalk, I guess. Right. It, this is a, a great story. Uh, so many fun things about it. And, um, one of the curious things to me about the so-called new Western history is that they, uh, did, uh, so much great work on all sorts of interesting new topics, mm-hmm. but they kind of forgot about this one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so there it is, uh, Wonderful story, just begging to be told. Yeah, and 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 reinterpreted and and retold, uh, which you do. Um, one thing uh, which is always interesting to me is the antecedents to this moment. You're speaking about cattle drives from Texas going to Kansas or even points farther north, um, and yet these were not the first cattle drives in American history or any other history. So we can talk about antecedents. There are Spanish antecedents, right? 
Right. So cattle drives uh, started on the Iberian Peninsula and then moved with Spain to the Americas. Uh, and uh, in the Americas, especially Mexico, cattle were herded um, often north to markets, uh, sometimes over long distance. Um, and um, they developed techniques. Uh, the interesting thing about this is uh, in the Spanish tradition, um, riding horses was reserved for gentlemen, mm -hmm. and cattle herding was a most ungentlemanly, uh, low-status um, job. So uh, what the Mexican um, vagueros did was to turn this equestrian uh, turn this into an equestrian profession mm -hmm. where they could be on horseback and developed all of the skills, the lassoing, the riding, um, the cutting uh, out uh, from the herd, um, and uh, these skills, uh, the branding even, mm -hmm. um, then uh, transferred uh, into Texas. But uh, so many of these uh, were from centuries-old um, uh, cattle drives in Mexico. And – Meanwhile, in Britain, there were also cattle drives. Um, people who watched the film Rob Roy or read Walter Scott's book know that uh, stealing cattle, driving cattle, extremely important to the Highlands economy. Uh, yes. People even drove cattle all the way from Scotland to London. Um, yes. So they're driving the, – the purpose of driving cattle is to drive them to market. Right. Um, that um, is always uh, the, the – the drive from the periphery or the hinterland somewhere in the rural countryside to uh, the urban market. And uh, as you say, all the way from Scotland to um, London, those drives were done uh, sometimes by uh, professionals, but usually a, a professional or a career uh, drover would work with uh, a number of young boys. And in that tradition, they also, of course, used dogs, those very smart um, cattle dogs, border collies, yeah. and so on that, that we still love. And those dogs, by the way, were smart enough uh, sometimes to find their own way home. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just like a, a, what's the incredible journey or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and I mean, anyone who's owned a Rottweiler uh, soon realizes that they have a herd instinct, and what they're for is herding cattle in the Alps or in Bavaria. That's their that's their job, and yeah. they they find the the alpha cow, and you know, as we'll discuss, alpha cattle are really important to herds. Um, yes. And, uh, the other thing that always intrigues me in colonial America, people don't realize what a big deal uh, and a big economic. Um, of what economic importance cattle driving was, uh, people drive up the Shenandoah Valley, uh, your home, t uh, where you were, you're, where you you're born and raised. Um, yes. Drive them up through Winchester to Philadelphia or to Baltimore. They drive cattle through the Carolinas, uh, through the various cow pens to Charleston. I think that's actually Charleston's biggest export, in size wise, not in value, uh, but it's a, it's a huge import out of the colonies to be slaughtered in the port cities, sold down, and then sold to slave owners in the Caribbean. Right. Yeah. So this is a, this a, the Scots Irish brought this tradition, and they they pursued it as you say all over the um, the south uh, east and increasingly southwest. Um, uh, Asheville, North Carolina, was a big cattle town, uh, but also sheep and uh, pigs, and they mm -hmm. might have uh, millions of dollars of of commerce in, in a year. So all this comes together, this Anglo tradition and then the Mex this new Mexican tradition of non-gentlemen riding horses, roping, branding, all the rest, all this comes together in Texas. So is that so this is the importance of Texas is where these two traditions come together, I guess, for the first right. time. Right. And uh you know, it started um uh early on um during the um the uh, Texan Revolution, um, they would ride and uh, take cattle, uh, Mexican cattle, and it was part of the war effort, as it were. So they had uh, they they these uh, so-called cowboy system developed a habit uh, of taking whatever cattle were available, and um, of course that bothered some people. They thought they were that cowboys were nothing more than glorified cattle thieves, mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, they um, developed that system, and as I say, they learned from the Mexican uh, cattle um, uh, 
riders who were also not above uh, taking whatever cattle were available. And uh, sometimes those cattle would get uh, pushed back and forth across the Rio Grande. I, I think they must have been the best exercised cattle in history because of how much they moved back and forth across the river there. So southeastern Texas is full of uh, – these, these are feral cattle by this time, right? Yes, these are feral cattle, uh, cattle from Spain, uh, Spanish cattle that as they moved north uh, became wilder. They were released from missions and that sort of thing, uh, and their horns grew longer as they needed those longer horns to survive uh, on their own in a in a fairly um, wilderness uh, setting. They, they had to protect themselves from wolves or uh, other predators. Um, they could even use those longhorns, uh, some said, to pull down the branches from trees so they could eat the leaves. Hmm. So they're browser. They, these are cattle that can browse. They can survive on anything. They uh, muskeet, cane thickets, brushland, scrub oak. They could uh, survive just about anywhere. So what are the estimates of like sort of this feral cattle population in southeastern Texas? I mean, they are in, in, in the best, luscious part of Texas is where they're sort of located. But what are the, they must be tens of, upon, tens of thousands. Uh, tens of thousands, and but even more by the end of the Civil War, uh, estimates are usually at about five million. Really? And, um, and why at the end of the Civil War? Well, during the Civil War, uh, the men went away to fight, uh, at least a good portion of them, and um, the cattle ran wild. And they're also um, – they're very um, good breeders, uh, those uh, Spanish uh, longhorn cattle. And they mixed with some American cattle to give them a sort of a distinctive genetic makeup. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they, they bred with great fecundity. So we, I, I mentioned in the case of J.M. Daugherty, this is 1866, and 1866, post-Civil War, this seems to be an important moment. Uh, people like this, I mean this kid, um, realize that there's money to be made here. Uh, you just have to, just have to, quote unquote, rope free cattle and then get them to market. Right, exactly. It's, it's. Um Getting them to market is is the trick, of course, because the cattle are, are free or nearly free. It takes some labor to, to uh, round them up and get them together. But um, the markets were distant, and uh, when the railroads started moving across Kansas, uh, that um, put dollar signs in people's eyes. So I guess the whole sort of idios the historical sort of moment of contingency is that the railroad didn't come into Texas first. Right. It did not come into Texas. And they had tried things like steamships and uh, and uh, drives to New Orleans, in fact. Um, none of those worked particularly well for a variety of reasons. Uh, and um, so this seemed to be the the you know the next big thing in that sense uh, I, the the cattle drives are part of that gilded age entrepreneurial spirit these are these people are in you know part Davy Crockett and and part John D Rockefeller yeah why why didn't driving it to New Orleans uh, work or steamships why don't steamships work uh, cattle would lose a lot of weight on steamships oh, and sometimes okay. die. Yeah. Uh, and New Orleans had an awful lot of uh, woods and river crossings to get through. Sure, of course. So they drive them north. Um, I realized that they're, they they soon realize there's another benefit to that, which is that um, grass is better outside of Texas. Um, the, I guess the whole idea of this is to do this for free. Um, you want to get the free cattle, and then you want to fatten them up on someone else's grass or on common grass. Right. That's the whole business model. So yeah, it's a yeah, it's a great business model, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's looking for you know quarters on the on the sidewalk again to continue that metaphor. Yeah. So um, you uh, one of the things that you uh, make clear from the very beginning is that there's a great deal of centralization going on. This is connected to centralization, industrialization. Um, how so? Well, uh, I guess uh, we could start with the with the railroads. Now, of course, sure. th this is um, the the Kansas Pacific, so we're looking at a transcontinental railroad. That railroad has to be talked into buying a uh, to building a spur line to a 
a cattle market. Uh, those things don't just happen by chance. Uh, in this case, Joseph McCoy was an Illinois cattleman who saw this cattle market in Kansas as an opportunity. He spent um, uh, several years um, uh, lobbying people to get uh, the right uh, infrastructure in place. He spent his own money to build stockyards just outside of this uh, town of Abilene, which wasn't really a town until he got there. Mm -hmm. um, and after convincing the railroad to build the spur line there, then um, he spent uh, thousands of dollars of his own money in advertising to get uh, Illinois uh, cattle buyers there, hmm. as well as probably um, hundreds of dollars uh, convincing Texans to drive their cattle there. Uh, so, uh, you know, the cattle market didn't just happen. It had to be created by uh, hard work, entrepreneurial activity. And, and you, um, you say that uh, people are also, there's a sort of a diet craze going on in the East, in which people are trying to eat more beef, which... Right. Um, I, I love it. Uh, beef is a health food of the day. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it will make you manly. It will build yeah. strength. Uh, it had a sort of middle class respectability about it. This is, of course, in contrast to uh, pork, which was uh, losing favor as uh, the food of poor people. And uh, I think it was Good Housekeeping who uh, a dietitian there wrote that uh, pork is not suitable for intelligent people. Uh, and so <laughs> <laughs> the, the, this, uh, you know, the beef market was just uh, opening up in that sense. And it's funny because these things must go in waves. I think the uh, the zoa archaeologists at Williamsburg report <laughs> that something like ninety five percent of all animal bones that they find in trash pits are either beef or mutton. Well, yeah. So, uh, so I imagine pork had its day maybe after the revolution, and then you know back came beef. Um, right. Uh, muffin never, mutton never came back. So the these uh, they they see their opportunity and they take it. So let's can you uh, trace what they start uh, a drive would start in say southeast Texas. Um, I realized reading this book and of course looking at the map and thinking about it that a cattle there's a lot of Texas to get through if you're starting down in the southeast corner. So um, describe a, a, a cattle drive going north. So. They would start in, uh, as you say, uh, even close to the Rio Grande in southeast Texas. And th so the first uh, month or two, uh, several hundred miles might be uh, through um, settled uh, or developed uh, territories where they would have to avoid towns. Um, and they, the good part was they could buy uh, groceries or uh, any foodstuffs uh, from farmers along the way. The bad part was that they had um, – sometimes conflict with those same farms. Mm -hmm. uh, they um, could uh, increase the size of their herd. Uh, they could pick up, that is, more cattle either legally or sometimes <laughs> illegally. Uh -huh. uh, some some farmers complain that uh, Bessie the milk cow ended up in the cattle drive going by. And so there's um, uh, so, uh, some of that going on. Um, and then they would uh, get to uh, Fort Worth, uh, usually, and at Fort Worth was the last of the the last opportunity to to stock up to get provisions, and from there they had then a hundred uh, miles or so of North Texas, which was lightly settled, and then they crossed the Red River into Indian Territory, and uh, for some of them that was the real wilderness. That was where the adventure began. So, how many would be cattle would be on a drive like this? Is there there's I guess there's no such thing as an average number. But give some perspective on that. Right. So um, a thousand was uh, pretty normal. In the first years, 1866-67, there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of small uh, ranchers might try uh, with, uh, say, several hundred herd even, mm -hmm. six, eight hundred. But by 1868 or 69, uh, they're doing uh, mostly herds of 1,000 uh, or even 2,000, sometimes 3,000 wow. were the most common. How many does it? How many men does it take to handle a herd of 1,000? Um, Doherty used five, well, six, including him. Is that is that small? Is that normal? 
That's small. Yeah. Uh, 2000, uh, the standard was, uh, or the most common uh, was probably about 12 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had a trail boss who would uh, ride out front, set the, the route they would take that day, find the water holes, find the campgrounds. And uh, he was uh, maybe the most important person in terms of making a successful drive. Uh, behind him would be the lead riders who would be at the head of the herd with the lead uh, cows. And then um, the uh, behind them, the uh, flank um, and uh, all the way at the back would be uh, the flank or the swing riders um, uh, at, along the herd, which might be stretched out for several miles. And then at the uh, back would be the drags. Which is the worst job of all, it would seem. Uh, reading your book, um, you never stop coughing up dust probably for the rest of your life. Uh, yes, uh, those people got enough dust. Uh, they couldn't uh, stop coughing up black phlegm for months, and maybe, as you say, for the rest of their life because it was in their lungs. We've got a. Uh, we've got. It was interesting to me. Um, there is no. Um, there is no uh, sentimentality towards the horse. Uh, they obviously, when you make sense, they have to switch horses a lot as they're riding for all all all, all day long. Uh, you can't ride a horse all day long. You have to keep on switching horses. Um, so horses are just tools, like everything else they've got around them. Uh, they treat them uh, more or less like a piece of machinery. Uh, they're riding all day and part of the night, yeah. uh, usually, because they have to do uh, night duty. Uh, and so um, each of those riders probably needed uh, three or four at a minimum and as many as six or eight different horses. Wow. Um and uh, they they tended to ride them pretty hard, uh, despite what we hear about the the sentimentality uh, that developed. There were a few uh, cowboys who would bring their own horses. Maybe they had a favorite, mm-hmm. and uh, that would be the horse that they would ride on oh a special occasion when they expected a harder work like a river crossing or to gather the herd after a stampede. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is some of that, but. Um, most of that sentimentality towards horses developed uh, later. The um, so the other people I think I haven't mentioned the, them the cook and the wrangler. Uh, the wrangler takes care of the horse herd. Um, I was yes. su- surprised to, to realize that that was not a high paying or a high status job. I would thought that that would be a you know very in- invaluable position, but it doesn't seem to have been been paid that way. It certainly uh, wasn't paid uh, that way, and uh, often it seemed like it would be one of the younger um, uh, members, one of the you know the farm kids who was looking for a little summer adventure. Hmm. And then the cook. And the cook. Uh, there seems to be a great deal of variation in the status of the cook. Uh, the cook might be the second highest paid person on the drive uh, and might be the lowest status. Uh, cooks tended to be uh, sometimes older cowboys who were maybe a little um, – uh, you know, the bones were a little too old to handle that much riding, and so they would go along as a cook. Sometimes it was uh, Mexican-American or African-American. Um, and if they were a good cook, they had a special status. Uh, if they were not so good, uh, then their status could be pretty low. The um, I should say what people were getting paid. The trail boss made like 100 bucks a month, a good one, I guess. Yeah, they might make as much as a hundred uh, a month. And just to give perspective, I believe I looked this up that a uh, a skilled blacksmith in say 1870 would make 350, 350 a year. So a hundred a month is for three months, four months. That's not bad. Right. Uh, so a trail boss is doing all right uh, and might uh, might be actually able to put some money away, mm-hmm. uh, as you say. Now, of course, in comparison to the blacksmith. His work is seasonal, yeah, and he may go uh, just as long unemployed as employed. Um, the herders, uh, especially as you get uh, the farther back the herd you get, the lower the pay typically, and uh, so they might uh, at drag somebody might be making twenty, maybe thirty dollars a month. Thirty to forty is pretty common. They tended to pay uh, Mexican American and African American workers less. In fact, some. Uh, Cattle drovers preferred Mexican riders because they had uh, typically more skill than the um, mm-hmm. Texans, but 
you could pay them less. Huh. So the who, these guys were young. Um, you you point out the the name cowboy in many cases is there's a reason why they're called that. Um, they're young or they're Mexican or they're African American. Um, that seems to be there as often. Is that right? I mean, is that the demographics of them? Yeah, that is the demographics. Um, unfortunately, there's not any really good um, uh, um, definitive evidence about uh, the exact makeup of that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's clear that there were lots of African-Americans and Mexican-Americans. Um, but uh, historians have had a little back and forth over that, uh, trying to sort it out. The most common um, number you hear is one-third were African-American. Um, unfortunately, um, when you track that down, it comes down to the sort of um, speculation, a, a guesswork mm-hmm. by uh, someone, uh, George Saunders, who collected a lot of these trail narratives, uh, much after the fact, though. What? Um, how do you herd 1,000 cattle or 2,000 cattle when there's like 10 of you? Uh, how's that work? Especially when these these are these are semi wild or wild cattle at first when you pick them up. Right. Um, the good thing is uh, once you get them as as they said uh, trail broke, they would herd themselves. So you might have to uh, work specially hard, but they would uh, typically find a a social hierarchy among the cattle. Uh, the lead um, lead steer lead cow or often lead ox would Mm -hmm. be absolutely crucial and um, then they um, tend to find after three or four days on the trail anyway they would tend to find the same place that is they would have the same they would keep the same company um, the same bovine company every day and um, so they tended to fall in place. Uh, and so one of the interesting things about Longhorns is you can say that in some sense they were their own uh, labor force. They did a lot of the work themselves. Um, but you, the, the cowboys, uh, of course, moved alongside. Uh, they, could, they decided how fast or how slow, uh, where they bedded down at night or bedded down at noon. And um, they had a sort of a, a, a pretty slick system of hand signals so they could go up and down a line that might be four or five miles long and give signals to each other about slowing down, speeding up. Um, squeezing them would tend to speed them up or they could uh, um, uh, expand them and let the, the, the them cattle drift a little bit more. Um, so it, it, these are uh, – and they have a great um, attentiveness to the herd nature of the longhorn. Um, they really know how to work with the grain of the wood. Um, it's uh, like the, uh, the using the the lead cow or the lead ox uh, was old blue was was Charles Goodnight sort of uh, yeah I love that story yeah old old blue was uh, Charles Goodnight's favorite uh, they said that old blue knew the way to Dodge City better than most cowboys because uh, that of course you had a good lead ox like that you never would uh, take him to the butcher house so he'd return back to the ranch and do the do the same uh, trip again the yeah. next year so somehow 2,000 cattle are following this one ox it's really- yeah yeah and this uh, old blue became such a favorite that he would uh, wander into the uh, the campfire circle at night and look for tre- special treats and that sort of thing yeah um, they are uh, but they also the the downside or another part of their herd nature is that they stampede really easily because if there's danger they're going to get away from it as fast as possible. Um, so that seems to me re- reading through it that's always the biggest danger that the cowboys were facing on the on the drive. Yeah, that's absolutely true. The uh, the prospect of stampede was ever present uh, because. Uh, Longhorns, being uh, both a herd animal and a semi-wild animal, a prey species, always on the alert, very sensitive to danger. So sometimes uh, if they're in a near a settlement, a, something as simple as a woman doing her, her laundry on the wash line might start a stampede. Um, 
sometimes, uh, uh, of course, storms, thunderstorms common on the southern plains there uh, could start a stampede. Um, sometimes stampedes were started deliberately by somebody who might want to pick up a few stray cattle. Um, and uh, sometimes it could be simply the the smell of a predator even that could cause a stampede it has it was um you know so the 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 rhythm of the trail is uh, just sort of mind-numbingly boring for days or even weeks at a time punctuated with these moments of sheer terror <laughs> yeah life-threatening uh, stampedes uh that you know yeah that, at, at, at the best, a stampede meant two to three days of really hard work. Be, before we go, as it were, go across Red River into Indian territory, um, guns and cowboys. Uh, we know what the myth is. What's the reality? So, uh, again, reading all of these um, uh, personal documents, guns don't come up very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Although um, we've forgotten this, Texas actually had gun control. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a a Texas law against carrying uh, guns in public. Uh, So while they were in uh, southeast Texas, in uh, settled Texas, uh, it would have been illegal to carry a gun um, uh, publicly. And uh, often on the trail, uh, the trail bosses didn't want their uh, hands to, to carry guns. Right. Because yeah. gun, guns had no particular use, they might get away, and if they did actually use them, <laughs> uh, it would start a stampede. Right. If they if they stampede over laundry, they'll certainly stampede over gunshots. Right. And so uh, a lot of times uh, the cowboys who didn't have guns with them would uh, keep them with their bedroll, which would be stored in the uh, in the chuck wagon uh, during most of the trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not to say that once they got was we'll see once they get to Abilene or, or eventually Wichita that they're not buying new guns and, and fancy ones. Uh, yes. It's just there's no particular need for it on the on the trail drive. And right. and to carry one in public in Texas is already to viol- to break the law, right? And also for that matter, most of the cow towns they had pretty strict um, gun policies as well. Yes, they did. As we'll as we'll see in just a second. Um, so they crossed into Indian territory. What Indian territory? What does that mean? Well, this is the. Um this is the end point of the Trail of Tears uh, for the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw. Um, so these are um, the so-called uh, civilized tribes who were um, nations, uh, sovereign nations recognized by the United States government with uh, um, rights to control their own territories. And uh, they many of them were herding peoples because they had they had learned to herd uh, cattle from uh, their southeastern neighbors um, in uh, Georgia and Alabama and so on. And um, unfortunately for them, uh, they had a well-developed herding economy that was devastated by the Civil War. So that meant their grasslands were largely uh, vacant at this point. They asked... Uh, well, they passed laws actually uh, charging a, a toll, a fee for uh, herds that would cross their land. Mm-hmm. And they would also uh, ask uh, both formally and informally uh, for a few cows. Mm-hmm. Now, Texans met that uh, in different ways. Some of them simply paid it and saw it as an uh, unavoidable cost of doing business. Um, others uh, said uh, saw it as an Indian menace, as a threat, the Indian threat, and uh, and so on. Uh, they met it with the Winchesters. Uh, they met it with um, the sort of Texas bluff and bravado. Um, and refuse to pay. Um, it, and, it's, it's interesting the variety of responses to it. Uh, it was c- kind of extraordinary, actually, to think that there were that many different uh, approaches to it. Um, so, as you say, some people just see it. Well, you're, I'm paying for grass and water, uh, which right. they, which they get in abundance. Other right. pe- other people like Doherty go all the way around the Cherokee or the Choctaw or someone else to to avoid it. Right. And of course, some of them would slow down their herds while passing through Indian grasslands uh, so as to allow the herds to gain weight. Yeah, that's one of the things they discover, right? That the uh, they realize that the northern grass, even Oklahoma and Kansas grass is just more 
nutritious and uh, ca- cows can fatten up. Right. So they uh, get them across Indian territory and they come into Kansas and um, Kansas is kind of um, it, it, hard to see whether Kansas benefits or suffers because of the cattle business. Um, what's the what's the what's the problem for for Kansans? Uh, yeah, Kansas both benefits and suffers. Um, the, okay, so Kansas has uh, at least two kinds of problems. One is that these uh, longhorn cattle carried with them a cattle tick yeah. that caused uh, Texas fever is the most common name. And um, the the Texas cattle, the longhorns, were immune to this, uh, having spent uh, many generations with this uh, cattle tick endemic. The Kansas cattle uh, or any northern cattle uh, – would suffer uh, in large numbers and die sometimes as much as eighty uh, percent of a wow. herd. So, what, what is so, this? What is this Texas fever? Do you... uh, well, it comes from a, a cattle tick, uh, a bufalus tick that that uh, carried with it a protozoa. Okay. Uh, and these came all the way from uh, from West Africa, okay. uh, through Mexico, uh, Central America, and north to Texas. And the cattle tick, by the way, spread all over the uh, the South, the American South. The um, It wasn't, I should say that in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, the source of the disease that everyone could see, Texas fever, mm-hmm. uh, was not identified with the cattle tick. Uh, that came later, and when people realized it was this tick that uh, caused the disease, and so that's part of the the, um, the controversy. Then uh, people knew that Texas cattle caused death to Kansas cattle. Uh-huh. Um, in the same way, by the way. Uh, South Carolina cattle or Virginia cattle, if they were carried north all the way to Pennsylvania or New York, might uh, cause death to cattle there. This Uh, is another example of the Columbian Exchange. This is the old world disease that, uh, you know, infects is is death on uh, on new world uh, cattle. Right. Right. Yeah. And this, uh, you know, developed in the tropics and the subtropics that um, did not work well it's almost uncanny how much this is a was sometimes called southern fever sometimes texan fever uh it the the when they did in the 1890s the uh, veterinarians and scientists drew a line of where the this cattle tick lived it pretty much described the confederate states (laughs) so that reflects also this uh this is not I guess I, I maybe it's in the movies. I don't know, but I, I guess I never thought of the Confederate uh, Yankee thing. Obviously, Kansas was in many ways the flashpoint for the Civil War, um, or at least from in 1855 onwards. Um, and those nothing has really changed in, in in many ways. The the blood has not changed between the Northerners and Southerners, at least on the cattle drive. Right. So there's there's still a lot of sectional animosity uh, and distrust. Uh, partly it focused on, on this Texas fever. Partly it focused on the fact that these cowboys who would come to town brought with them this, this herding tradition. And especially by the time they got to uh, – into um, – the towns like Abilene or Wichita, uh, they were they were ready for a spree. They they would drink. They were lawless. They liked to shoot the pistols into the air. And these Kansas farmers were good church going, school building, community building sort of people. They wanted to create a you know a a, um, uh, a society that you might think of as almost uh, New England or certainly Midwestern in its mm-hmm. uh, more um, respectable sort of elements. And uh, these Texas cowboys were just uh, the stuff of nightmares for them. And uh, at least initially, a lot of those Texas cowboys were Confederate veterans. And a lot of those Kansas farmers had just been shooting at Confederates. Yes. And uh, and they didn't forget that. No. Um so, uh, nonetheless, we've got people like Joseph McCoy. You've mentioned him. He's 29 years old. Like most people in the story, Charles Goodnight's 20 uh, when, when he starts the Goodnight Loving Trail. Um, Joseph McCoy is just 29, and he gets this idea, this bright idea to create Abilene, to create this cow town. 
um, the profits involved are really kind of extraordinary. Uh, you have the cost for the ni- a 900 pound steer. It costs you 11 to 14 dollars in Texas. It bumps up to 28 dollars in Abilene. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at a that a doubling the price of a of a steer by driving it north to Abilene. Right. And then it's 38 dollars on the hoof in Chicago when it gets to Chicago. So that's right. that's the that's the profit motive that gets people up the trail. Right. The 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 great water uh, great Texas historian Walter Prescott Webb of a of an earlier generation, several generations earlier, said it was to the goal of the cattle trails was to connect the four dollar steer with the forty dollar market. Yeah. And that may have been a, a little exaggeration, but that tenfold increase is what uh, was. Uh, you know what people hoped for, mm-hmm. um, and as you say in the numbers, the actual numbers didn't um, always do that. But uh, a doubling in profit um, was was good money. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so were these cow these cow towns, um, Abilene, Dodge City, Newton, Ellsworth, um, Wichita? They all uh, they spring up back and they they some of them uh, spring up like Newton and last for a season. Other ones last for longer. Um, how's this happening? Competition, right? Right. Uh, so they're they're, they're split. Uh, popular opinion in and around each of these towns is split. On the one hand, they see the cattle ta- the cattle business as a a source of revenue and the you know the next big thing which will elevate their town to be the premier town of the region. <laughs> On the other hand, as we've said, they're a little bit uh, nervous about all these uh, rude and uh, wild cowboys uh, mm-hmm. being around. So uh, it was just you say a, a saloon could be built for as little as four hundred dollars and earn a hundred dollars a night. Right. Talk about profit incentive. Uh, yeah, that's, that's that's pretty amazing. And some of these towns, uh, you could even throw up a saloon in a in a tent uh, sure. sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's, and it, it's Newton in particular. Yeah, uh, it's the ultimate in incre- incremental development. Um, and you know the the incentives prostitution too. Uh, a woman earns a dollar to two dollars a day cleaning, five dollars a night as a prostitute. Right. And uh, so there could be incentives. You know, the, the, the scholarship on prostitution is interesting in that it um, is hard to get uh, to the, you know, uh, hard to get really good, uh, reliable information on, for instance, how many prostitutes are there mm-hmm. because of that profit motive. Certainly some of them are. But there also is some evidence of people who were basically carried into prostitution i suppose in the 21st century we might call them sex slaves mm-hmm. um and uh so there's um uh, certainly a it was certainly potentially lucrative but also uh potentially very dangerous sure. they, they had very little protection from the law as you, uh, you, as you point out this is that's the that's going to be the greatest uh, focus of violence if we want to look for violence in a cow town it's going to be in the sex trade Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what are these? What are these twenty-year-olds or eighteen-year-olds get up there? What do they spend their money on? I guess I, we shouldn't be surprised that it's liquor and clothes. Uh, liquor, clothes, uh, and gambling are the ones that um, everybody uh, is probably aware of. What surprised me most was uh, was food, uh, and especially <laughs> uh, right. groceries. Yeah. They, they want fresh vegetables. Yeah, they want uh, onions and potatoes and uh, and greens. Uh, after months of a diet of sourdough biscuits and beans, uh, with if they're lucky, a little bacon grease thrown in. Yeah, they weren't eating. They were not eating their profit on the trail. I notice. And yeah, and they didn't even like buffalo, which is kind of extraordinary to me. Um, right, when they could get it. Uh, so. They spend who makes money? Do any of these kids ever, you know, I, I guess there's one or two geniuses who are squirreling away their, you know, half of their profits uh, to go back and be ranchers, but not many. Right. Uh, there were a few. And I, I just uh, since the book came out, I came across a, a, a story of um, four um, African-American um, cowboys from East Texas who uh, saved their money and went home and bought ranches. Hmm. Um, and so that 
using that money as uh, potential for um, social mobility was possible, but by far the uh, most common thing was to simply spend it. Um, there's uh, a, a great uh, narrative in the in the collection of trail narratives that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. where the the guy simply says, "And then I got to Abilene and." Uh, alcohol and the gambling ta- uh, tables and well you boys know the rest of the story <laughs> i went home and had to beg for food all winter long wow um th- the railroads uh engage in overbuilding through kansas um does that affect the story uh or does this does this sort of is this where the story ends with the railroads finally extending themselves so that you don't have to tra- uh, drive on the trail anymore well the the railroads in Kansas uh, certainly overextended, and um, uh, it shaped the the destination, especially the the railroad competition, uh, a second railroad through Kansas that was almost certainly not necessary, hmm. but created Dodge City, the perhaps the most famous, the last and most famous of the cow towns. Mm-hmm. And you know the thing about that was the um, railroads. Uh, and I think this is revealing about how those uh, frontier communities work. The railroads had plenty to bring from the east to the west, manufactured goods, uh, foodstuffs, as well as passengers. They had, uh, in at least in Kansas, very little return um, back to the east. And that th- helped make the, can- the, the drive to Kansas profitable because it kept railroad uh, oh. Freight rates low. Okay. They were anxious for to to be able to load those cattle because they had nothing else, uh, or not much else to to put on the, for those return trips uh, to the east. They didn't want them to be deadheading on the way back. So you've right. got they've got the price uh, goes from seven dollars a head to ship cattle to two dollars a head, which right. is um, extraordinary. Um, how does this all end? Um, you, the, you describe the, the drives get ever more longer. They're driving, uh, cattle farther and farther North. Is that for the grass? Uh, yeah. So the, the drives almost end after the panic of 1873. Really? Okay. That uh, the railroads, um, uh, railroads after that, uh, um, started to come into Texas so there by the mid 70s there were some railroad alternatives to cattle drives um, but um, and uh, Joseph McCoy for instance thought well the time for cattle drives is over mm-hmm. uh, and he he said that and wrote that publicly and uh, but then what happened is after the demise of the buffalo and the subjugation of Plains Indians, the Comanche and the Sioux in particular, Mm -hmm. uh, the northern ranges opened up. And that's where these northern range bunch grasses could fatten up Texas cattle. And so if you could just get those cattle up there and then they'd uh, eat that northern nutritious northern grass for a few years, uh, they they could be extraordinarily valuable. And so that's when Wyoming, Montana, Nebraska, the Dakotas uh, filled up with uh, these cattle uh, coming in from Texas and other places. And so I I mean, I never thought about this before and it's silly that I didn't, but um, being a cowboy is a Texas thing that eventually is exported North. Um, Wyoming people are not cowboys until they learn how to be so from Texans. Exactly. Because there were uh, cattle coming from, uh, say, Illinois into Wyoming and Montana, but you don't learn how to be a cowboy from herding cattle in Illinois. No. Yeah, that's yeah. A, it's a Texas thing. Yeah. Okay. It's the, the combination of the horse, the lasso, the branding. You might be herding them with, with dogs or something like that in, in, in Illinois and in Wyoming at first, but right. then that changes. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, what happened – well, so two things happened to, to end the drives. Uh, one was uh, the um, – in Kansas, the uh, fear of Texas fever kept pushing – they had a quarantine line that kept moving west and, mm-hmm. and uh, cattle drives east of that line were illegal. And finally, in 84, the uh, Kansas legislature just said uh, the whole state is quarantined to Texas cattle. And so that left very little – uh, opportunity. Uh, Wyoming uh, also uh, 
did not like Texas cattle. And so uh, that was one thing that was closing the gate. And the other then is here on the um, – where I am in Montana uh, and Wyoming in the winter of 1886-87, there was uh, the Great Die-Up, mm-hmm. it's called. And uh, bitter, cold uh, winter – 20, 40, 50 below zero combined with deep snows uh, meant that um, cattle froze in large numbers. Uh, some herds, uh, almost entire herds, people lost uh, almost all of their cattle, uh, 90% in some counties. Uh, estimates are hard to be accurate, but perhaps as many as two-thirds of the cattle in uh, northern Wyoming and Montana died that winter. And uh, so people moved away from uh, Longhorns. They moved towards uh, pasturing uh, cattle in fenced pastures with hay fields and a more conventional um, uh, system. So the cattle trade continues, but there's no need for the drives anymore. Right. And uh, I guess that was, that was like 1886 was very bad for Teddy Roosevelt and ranchers in Montana and Wyoming, but it must have been a very good year for Texas ranchers, um, you would think. Yeah, good good point. Yeah. I never thought about it. They enjoyed the The price of beef was excellent from their from their perspective. Right. Uh, but by that time, they had railroads. Uh, they, could, uh, they could herd them to Fort Worth and get on the railroad there or something like that. Right. So they're they're getting their cattle to market in other ways and um yeah and even um uh what might have been their best uh strategy uh from an economic point of view would have been to uh longhorns typically needed some um some fattening up on either corn feed or grass or something and and they if they had done that in Mexico and put the slaughterhouses in, in uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in Texas, mm-hmm. they may have made more profit altogether. All that money that went into Kansas City and Chicago slaughterhouses could have uh, happened closer to home. Right. So that, by this time, then we've got this whole grain finishing in the yard, stockyards of Omaha and Kansas City and Chicago. And then the whole the whole that is that right? I mean, that's the 1880s, right. 1890s thing. Right, so that's the that's the '90s pattern. Okay, um, it's interesting. So that's it's uh, that's when Americans get the, used to the idea of of grain finished beef rather than grass finished beef. Right, uh, I find it interesting that we're going back to uh, you know some people prefer the grass beef now, and uh, well, you pay a premium for that now even. But, yeah. Well, I I, uh, pre- I prefer it, and it actually turns out those health. The health gurus of 1860s were right. I mean, a, a grass to finish beef is a is a wonderful, uh, a very healthy thing indeed. Yes, yes, it is. Um, the uh, the the whole uh, you know, and the other thing that's happening, of course, is refrigerated railroad cars, which changed the way beef slaughtering was done. And uh, you know, that's a story sort of beyond my book in some ways. Which, but that that's. I, and oddly enough, we just talked with Jonathan Reese about that, uh, okay. which I think will be the week before that when this podcast drops. So the, so people listening to this will just have heard about refrigerated train cars. That was completely by accident. I did not, I did not plan on that until I just realized that now. Um, I, back to Teddy Roosevelt. Um, I hadn't occurred to me that in many ways the way that the cowboy enters into American mythology as an image is because of Teddy Roosevelt's, because of the of 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 him. Is that part of your argument? Uh, yeah, Teddy Roosevelt and a few others. Um, that um, as the cattle drives were were in fact uh, ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 80s, uh, there seemed to be this um, thirst for cowboy stories. Uh, Buffalo Bill Cody and the Wild West show and, and other Wild West shows told cowboy stories that were enormously popular, dime novels. And of course, then uh, Teddy Roosevelt is uh, most certainly the most famous of all of these people. He came west, uh, ranched, and um, and wrote about it. And um he, um, you know, the the famous uh, quip about him when he became president is now that damned cowboy <laughs> is uh, in the White House. And, um, of course, um, he was only a sort of a part-time cowboy. Some people call him a pretend cowboy uh, mm-hmm. uh, because it wasn't really uh, an extended career or anything for him. But 
he did uh, celebrate the romance and the myth of this rugged, independent uh, person who was especially good. It was uh, nostalgic. He was looking at a time, an imagined time in American history when, uh, you know, men were men and uh, adventure was available to all. Which was only 15 years before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was nostalgia for 15 or 20 years uh, in, the, yeah. in the past, uh, which I guess that's, that's you can see that happening now too. Um, you can, that's, I guess, a recurring theme and Nostalgia right. is often for a more, much more recent time than we think. Yeah, and and for uh, at least partially imagined uh, time as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt didn't uh, romantic romanticize the uh, the the work of the drag cowboy. No, uh, he he romanticized the 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 freedom of the open range. Well, even I, I mean, I think as I recall, he lost. Uh, I think I said he had lost a lot of money in the eighteen eighty six. The great the great die out but right. by the time he got to north dakota he was he was he was really after the era of the the great drives right i mean he he was uh fattening them up on his range and taking them to the local slaughterhouse right yeah he's he's uh, came after the drives i think it'd be interesting uh to think what would happen to him had he gone on a drive uh, he may have changed his tune a little bit <laughs> maybe um but he, you know i mean it's uh, powerful in him and i guess his idea is that you know he comes out in an asthmatic and he leaves stronger and healthier than ever in his life so it's a, that's a powerful sort of personal success story that's in his exactly mind. and and uh, it's a you know it's a wonderful story for him but it it's probably the exact opposite of what happened to most people who uh, were actually cattle workers. They ended up, uh, you know, with bodies uh, crushed and broken, all stove up is the old cowboy expression uh, by 35 maybe. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, perhaps coughing up uh, dust uh, from your lungs for the rest of your life. So yeah. uh, what worked for him uh, worked in the opposite way for a lot of the actual laborers. Yeah, I was wondering when you said that Cook was the, the old guy, I was wondering, is that like 35, 40? Um, yeah. You know, that's probably how old they were. 35 to 40 is, is uh, you know, definitely a veteran on the trail drives. As we're, uh, we need to wrap this up, I, the number of people who are actually involved in the drives is really astonishingly small. Right. What, um, what's, what's your estimate? Well, estimates range from uh, ten thousand to thirty thousand um, total, and um, or, or in a year. Uh, in a year, it would be uh, a fraction of that. Huh. I think that almost certainly the thirty thousand estimate is high, and and ten to twelve thousand total, and perhaps uh, fewer than a thousand in any given year. Um, and uh, you know, the other thing is most of these uh, herders did not. Uh, go up the trail more than once. Yeah. Once was uh, enough. Yeah. Uh, once got you to be what they called a graduated cowboy. <laughs> and and uh, no reason to do that again. Yeah. So it's, people would just go back and they would work the, the range in their, in their home area. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so what's your favorite uh, movie about a cattle drive? Uh, favorite, uh, Red River. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that when reading your book, Red River is really, except for the ending, uh, Howard Hawks kind of wimped out there. Yeah, I think I agree. The first time I watched it, I could not figure out what the heck was going on in the last, what, 10 minutes. It, it happened so fast. I, I, you right. know, but it's a very, yeah. it's a great movie uh, for that. Uh, why not Lonesome Dove? Um, well, Best book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, best. Uh, uh, I mean, it's a genius of a book I, because when you think about uh, cowboy literature, not very much of it is about cattle drives. No, you're right. Yeah. Uh, the Virginian, for instance, the, the traditional or classic uh, cowboy novel from 1902, uh, there's almost no cows in it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, and and so uh, Larry McMurtry's a genius to make the cattle drive the central uh, plot device. And, uh, and 
for 800 pages and make it work. And Howard Hawks uh, in Red River, though, he I think you point this out, and I think this is so he captures the monomania, the John Wayne character of getting those cattle to market, which must have marked. I mean, Charles Goodnight must have been a hard person to be around sometimes. Uh, I think so. Yeah. And this kid, um, J.M. Doherty, that, there's a great movie there, uh, but uh, if even half of his story is true, he was monomaniacal to the nth degree. Yeah, yeah. And he uh, he went on, uh, had other uh, drives and became a successful rancher. Not, uh, not surprising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, right now I'm working on um, – Something about wolves in the American West and the American West, including the Canadian West. Wolves in the American West, and what is that? How they're hated? Uh, how they're how they become either blamed for everything or the best possible animal in the world, or or what? Uh, um, I I love them because they have such symbolic uh, power for humans. Uh, uh, it's the sort of thing that gets people riled up and. Yes. Uh, and so I'm not out to um, to uh, what I, I, I'm more interested in how wolves have been a part of the fabric of life over a couple of centuries here. Hmm. My guest today has been Tim Lehman. He is the author of Up the Trail, How Texas Cowboys Herded Longhorns and Became an American Icon. Tim, thanks so much for joining us on Historically Thinking. Thank you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 